I just want to read a couple of verses out of Romans chapter 7, and we'll kind of do a little introduction and then continue uh, in our study from last week, just closing up that one last point. But I want to read verses 7 through 11 of Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> what, shall, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. I wanted to open up with um, a verse out of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 10, because we're talking about the law, sin, and death, and we're talking about sin's relationship to the law, And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And as I was reading this past week, I noticed that uh, in one of his messages, John MacArthur pointed out a couple reasons why, basically, the law is uh, weak. God's law is uh, ineffective in certain ways as it relates to us. And it's meant to be that way. And he just pointed these out, and I just want to go over these a little bit uh, in, in introduction. And the first one was, the law requires behaviors that are opposite the desires of the heart. And you realize that. I mean, when you read the Ten Commandments even, your heart wants to do the opposite. That's just who we are. And so the law requires the very opposite of what, by nature, our heart desires to do. And that's why it goes against the grain of someone who is unregenerate to keep the law. It's impossible. It's hard. It's difficult. If it was easy, everybody could do it. But the law asks the sinner, it requires of the sinner, it demands and commands the sinner to do what is absolutely contrary to what his will is. And then secondly, he said, the law calls for the sinner to do what not only uh, to do what not only to do, but uh, what he does not want to do, but what he cannot do. So the law calls us to do not only what we don't want to do, but something that we we can't do. It's impossible for the sinner to keep the law of God. And so we like to think once in a while, if we do something good, well, that makes us righteous. And we've learned over our studies that righteousness is something that God grants to us. We're justified, and, and a result of that justification is righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ. And so even if the sinner desires to do the right things... He can't do them. That's why the Bible says there's none, what? Righteous, no, not one. We saw that back in Romans chapter 3, that no one understands, no one does good. And so 
Not only does he not desire it, but it's impossible for him to do it. Thirdly, he says this, the law exacts on all sinners absolute perfection of performance and accepts nothing less. That's what the law does. You cannot satisfy the law by keeping some of it, the Bible says. And that's what we read there in Galatians 3.10. That if you even break one little minutia of the law, you're under the curse of the law. And so when Jesus said, well, to the Pharisees, when they asked, well, how do we inherit the kingdom of God? He says, you have to be what? Perfect, right? You have to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, but that's tough. We can't satisfy the demands of the law by keeping the law. Fourthly, he says, the law refuses to accept effort as any consolation. In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you try. The law still says, no, you, didn't, you missed the mark. So what? You kept nine of the Ten Commandments? Well, you missed the one? That's too bad. You're right down at ground zero once again. Because the law is a perfect reflection of the nature of God. It's absolutely holy. That's what we read in verse 12. And it requires that we do all of it perfectly. And if we don't, the law doesn't care. (laughs) The law doesn't pat us on the back and say, well, good try. It says, no, you're condemned. Fifthly, the law accepts no limited payment for its violators. There's no way that a sinner can say, I know I have violated your law, but I I, kind of have a a plan to work this off. (laughs) I have a plan to kind of do an end around. Uh, somehow, there, there's got to be a plan, God, outside of, of this, this keeping this law by perfection. So maybe it's, you know, 80-20 something, you know, you're going to give us kudos for effort or something like that. No, the law does not do that. And then sixthly, he says, the law is an unrelenting taskmaster. And what, master. And what he means by this is it, it never eases up. The law is with you 24-7. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're driving down Jefferson at 12 noon doing 50 miles an hour or you're driving down Jefferson at 3 o'clock in the morning going 50 miles an hour. If there's a cop there, he's going to pull you over and he's going to issue a ticket. You can't say, well, there's nobody on the road. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Did you see the sign? Yeah. Well, the law is with us 24-7. It never lets up. The, The load of the law that we bear never lightens. It never gives us a day off. It never gives us an hour off, a minute off, a second off. There's no rest from the law. God never at one point says, okay, we've been trying really hard. Well, you know what? Take two weeks off and do whatever you want. It doesn't work that way. Seventh, he says, the law breaks the soul. The law breaks the soul. It crushes the soul because when a sinner violates the law, They experience what? Guilt and shame. You experience sorrow and restlessness, pain, doubt, fear, remorse. Because the sinner has nothing within himself to recover from that breaking of the law. The law asks us to do something that we not only do not want to do, but we cannot do. And it doesn't bend the grading curve. Eighth, the law promises to punish the sinner eternally in hell. There's no way around this. 
If you break God's law, there awaits for you a punishment upon those who break the law of God that will last for all eternity in hell. And the only way out of that is through a Savior who came to die, to live, be buried, to die, be buried, raised the third day. He paid the entirety of our sin. That's the only way we can escape that judgment of the law. And I think it's very important that we realize that. There's no back door. There's no second way or third way. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to me wants to come to the Father. He has to come through me. There's no parole. There's no grace in the sentencing. The law, ninthly, gives no help to the sinner. There's nothing in the law that provides strength or power to keep it. It's just the law. It doesn't help us. The law has no power at all. We learned this last week. We touched on this to save us. That's not why it was given. Sinners are powerless to obey its demands, so the law establishes a standard and gives you no help to keep it. Tenth thing he points out is the law, once it has been offended, provides no restoration. The law provides no restitution. The law doesn't say, okay, well, you broke this. Well, here, go say Hail Marys and and our fathers, and then that'll that'll take care of everything. The law doesn't say that. That's man-made. That's what God, what man has come up with to try to please God. But the law provides no uh, opportunity for that. The law does not give us a path to God. You can't be saved by the law. There's nothing in the law of God that will save you. Eleventh, he says the law listens to no repentance. In other words, the law is deaf. You can whine all you want. You can say, I'm sorry all you want. The law doesn't care. The law says, no, you know what? You're guilty of breaking the law, and here's your sentence. Death forevermore in hell. You can cry all you want. You can say you're sorry all you want. The law in and of itself has no way to provide you any kind of ear for repentance. And then 12, he says, the law offers no forgiveness. There's nothing in the law to provide forgiveness. You can cry out for grace, you can cry out for mercy from the law, but you're not going to get any. I mean, that's how the law works, if you think about it. The law doesn't care about your repentance. The law is the law. Now, obviously, there are people in our system of law that override the law (laughs) that say, well, I think this guy's remorseful. You know, we're not going to sentence him to 10 years. We'll give give him five years, even though the law says we can give him 10 years. But see, that's on the human side. The law doesn't do that in and of itself. The law is a very difficult taskmaster. The law offers us no hope. As long as you're under the law, you're never going to have a better day. You have nothing to look forward to but the judgment of God. Now, as we read that, and we understand that, we see here 
in chapter 7, at the very beginning, we read, What then shall we say that the law is sin? In other words, if what you said, Steve, is true about God's law, man, that sounds like a pretty nasty thing. Let's just label it sin. And Paul says, no, by no means. And he ends there in verse 12. He says, the law is holy. The law, the commandment is holy. It's righteous. It's good. It just doesn't have any ability to save us. And so when you stop and you think of our rights and privileges that we have because of our union with Christ, You know, we celebrate the communion table here this morning. We celebrate that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died. And we've been learning about that union that we have with Christ. That we're now married to Christ. That we have a a mystical union, that we're one with Christ when we come to him for salvation. Well, what does that mean? If the law means all that stuff and the law has nothing to offer us, well, what does a relationship with Christ have to offer with us? Offer us. What rights, what privileges do we have? You know, when you graduate from college or high school, or probably even, I don't know if they do this in grade school, but a lot of times they'll say, basically the president will stand up and he'll say, the society of learned men and women, and he'll say, all the rights and privileges and responsibilities pertaining thereunto are granted to you because you have a diploma in your hand. The same thing, when you come to Christ for salvation, when you turn from yourself, when you give up at trying to save yourself, you have certain rights. You have certain privileges in Christ. The first one is this, access to God in prayer. These are listed here in your outline. It says there in Romans 5, 2, we looked at this several weeks ago, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's not referring to prayer so much as that we have gained access. We have status before God now because we're justified in Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses or transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus even said in John 14, verses 13 and 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What an incredible blessing we have in Christ with our newfounded relationship with God through Christ is that we have access to God through prayer. You can talk to God 24-7, just like the law is a taskmaster 24-7. It never gives up. You know what? God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's there in the wee hours of the morning when we're stressing out of something or when we're on the freeway in an accident in the afternoon. Whatever it might be, we can call upon God. And he doesn't put you on hold. He doesn't put you on call waiting. He doesn't say, oh, okay, now's not a good time. No, we have immediate access. And it's all because of our relationship with Christ. The second thing here that we see because of our union with Christ is that we have a provision for all of our needs. I think now more than ever we live in a need-centered society. 
people are constantly thinking about what they want, about how to get it. That's why people who do marketing and advertising, they totally understand that. And they manipulate us like little, you know, things on a string or something, you know, little puppets on a string. Oh, we'll put this ad out there and that'll create a, a need for this. As Christians, instead of always thinking about our own needs, we need to be concentrating on the needs of others. We really do. It's certainly true that we do have needs. And one of the privileges of our new relationship to God, the Father through Jesus Christ, is that God promises, listen, to supply our needs. He's willing because in His nature, that's just who He is, to do good to those He created. He's able because he's, he's omnipotent. He can take care of anything you have to bring to him. He has an unlimited, the Bible says, supply of riches at his disposal. Paul also wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, And my God will what? Meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. See, the problem, I think, in modern society is we get needs confused with wants. <laughs> You know, we want all this stuff, but God's saying, well, you know what? You probably don't need all that stuff. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. Thirdly, our rights and privileges of the union with Christ, not only access to God in prayer, provision for all of our needs, but thirdly, Jesus' personal care and protection. I mean, he's personally caring for us. He's protecting us. I mean, can you imagine if there was a wife in our congregation who was in serious trouble and you ran and you told her husband and her husband said, ah, she'll deal with it. <laughs> what would you think? You think, man, this guy's, what's wrong with this guy? Right? I mean, you, you would never think a husband would do that. You'd never think a husband would be so callous toward his own wife. See, no one will ever be able to make that complaint against Jesus. He's our faithful helper. He's one who's a constant protector. Jesus, our bridegroom, he is with us each step of our journey through life. Matthew 28, 20 says, and he said, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One translation says, And lo, I am with you always. I talked to a pilot and he said, I don't like that verse. <laughs> Lo, I'm with you. What what happens when I get up at 50,000 feet? Is God still with me? See, as he accompanies us, he he also works with us to make us all that he wants us to be. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27, Paul is speaking here of marriage, but he writes this. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, that's what Jesus does For us in full measure. He's used as a picture. For our marital relationship. And he's a wonderful example. Of someone who cares. And protects. His children. Jesus is a present. He's present to deliver us. From temptation. 
Paul assures us over in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has seen you, seized you except that which is common to man. And God is what? Faithful, right? He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to, be, to bear. But he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. See, the temptation is not the sin, beloved. Just because we're tempted doesn't mean we're sinning. It's what we do with that temptation. And we have to remind ourselves that, hey, God has given us, Jesus has given us everything we need to deal with any temptation that comes down the pike. We just have to realize that. And we have to count it as true. And when that temptation comes, we have to remind ourselves, you know what, there's a way out of this. There is a way out of this. My problem is, do I want to take it or not? And then the last thing, one of the rights and privileges that we have, and it kind of ties in with our missionary video, the Bible. I mean, there's a sense in which the whole world has the Bible to some degree. It's available to anybody, I mean, especially nowadays via the Internet. It's hard to understand that there are some countries that still people are wanting the Bible and they can't get it. But having the Bible is much more than just having a copy if we're, if we're truly believers. Because together with God's Holy Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit interprets the Bible to us and we hear the voice of the Lord through His Word. We need to be reminded of that. The psalmist says, My spirit pants for thee, O living word. And we have to be reminded that God has given us His Word. And He gives it to us in a way that we can read it, that we can comprehend it. I mean, aren't you glad the Bible isn't in Greek and Hebrew? I mean, it could have been. Could have said, this is all you got. (laughs) No, God is very generous. He provides that for us. And now you say, okay, well, we got the law and all the negative stuff, and we got our life, our union in Christ, and all the positive stuff that we have. And today I just want to focus briefly on a little word study on the word flesh. And it's all the way back in verse 5. It says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And we learned last week that basically the law is not sin, the law is good, but it reveals our sin. And we also looked at the law provides Uh, provokes sinners to sin. When someone says, oh, you can't do that, you want to do just that, that they told you not to do. But when we think about our flesh, I kind of skipped over this slightly on purpose because I wanted to tie it in with this message. But that word flesh, the Greek word, sarks, It can mean several things, and they're written for you there in your outline. And it's occurred several times in Romans. And this is very fundamental, it's very foundational to us understanding anything going forward in the book of Romans. It can mean the soft, fleshly part of the body. 
you look up Luke, we're not going to do it for time's sake, 2439, you'll see that's what it means. Jesus came in the flesh. It can mean the whole body, Galatians 2.20. It can mean the sensual part of our nature. It can mean the whole of mankind, everybody, just human flesh. It can also mean the unregenerate or unbeliever, as it does in Romans chapter 8. You say, well, why are you bringing this up? Why is this important? Because when you stop and you think of your theological understanding of the word flesh, and you think of your theological understanding of your, your Christian experience, this word comes up over and over and over again in, in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And some have made the error that, that basically leads into a, a, a wrong doctrine. Um, the problem is that the word flesh, it's used in a lot of different ways. Just like in English, we have different words that we, we use differently. Um, and I think that when you stop and you think of the word mind, M-I-N-D, the English word mind, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean the brain. It can also mean determination, having a mind to do something. It can also mean be careful, mind what you do. Uh, In philosophy, the mind can mean the controlling spirit of the universe. See, in the same way, the word sarks in in the original language can mean various things. And we've listed those there for you. But it's important to understand what it means here. In this case, it obviously doesn't mean the whole of mankind because it's being used as a contrast to those who are in the Spirit. That's kind of clear. It's not referring to the body or even to any parts of the body. In Romans, it's a term, basically, the last definition there is for unregenerate unbelievers. It's what we were before God saved us. And you see it over in Romans chapter 8. If you look at verse 5, Romans chapter 8, those who live according to the sinful nature or flesh, sarks, that's the same word, have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. The mind that is controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. One writer says this, Where sarks or flesh is understood in the full theological sense, it denotes the being of man which is determined not by his physical substance, but by his relationship to God. And you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because I want to take just a few moments and kind of debunk a Christian teaching that is very prevalent in so many churches today about the carnal Christian. We've all heard this. We've all, at times, come in in touch with this. The carnal Christian theology is basically this. It's a teaching that was invented to accommodate all the supposed converts of modern evangelism. It really was. Um, 
they had to somehow explain why all these people were walking aisles and, and going to evangelistic crusades and being, quote, saved, and yet, where are they today? <laughs> why aren't they still living for Christ? And we're referring specifically to those who make decisions by walking aisles, making professions as Christians, raising hands, whatever you want to do it. But their lives have never been changed by the Holy Spirit. They do not love what Christians love. They don't hate what Christians hate. They act and they live like non-Christians, and yet they profess Christ. And so their teachers had to come up with a, a reason And so they came up with an unbiblical category called the carnal Christian. And it basically has a two-experience theory. Stage one is this. It's conversion. You realize that you're lost in your sin. And so you make a decision to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. And when you do that, you're guaranteed that that will keep you out of heaven or keep you out of hell. It will keep you out of hell. And now stage two, well, that's another decision. And at that point in time, you have to decide, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life or not? You've accepted him as your Savior, but now do you want to crown him Lord of your life? You can see where this this teaching gets off, (laughs) Uh, it's probably one of the most perverted teachings in our generation. It's not only dangerous. It's not only self-deceiving, but in many cases, it's damning. And as a result of this erroneous teaching, many who regularly occupy the, the pews on a Sunday morning and fill our church roles are strangers to what we would call true conversion. They're strangers to heart religion. The transformation of the heart because they've never experienced the power of a changed life. They're not new creatures in Christ. For them, the old things have not passed away, as Paul says will happen for those who truly come to Christ in 1 Corinthians 5.17. But this was invented to kind of help those explain all these people who supposedly came to Christ. And probably one of the most prevalent organizations, unfortunately, that really pushes this is Campus Crusade for Christ. Basically, a pretty good organization. I mean, they they definitely have evangelistic ideas. They're reaching out to people. This is also popularized by the Schofield Bible, Study Bible, which is a pretty good Bible for the most part. But basically... Schofield divided men into three classes, the natural, the spiritual, and the carnal. And basically, that's what Campus Crusade does. And we've all seen these probably little things. The first one is the self-directed life. And you say, well, what is that? That's the non-Christian. You see the little throne there, and you see the S on it, and you see all the dots. Their life is in chaos. Nothing's structurally. The throne represents who's in charge of their life. Where is the cross? The cross is outside of that circle. Doesn't sound bad. It's actually a pretty good illustration if you want to look at it that way. And then the second class, basically here's where they break down. They say Christians who are sinful or they're immature or they're carnal. Look at that diagram. You have self is still on the throne and you have 
the cross as being subservient to the self, and all the little dots are still all messed up. And so they say there's the non-Christian, the one who's not, Christ is not in their life at all. Then you have the carnal Christian, that's that theology I'm talking about, where you have Christ in your life as your Savior, but he's not your Lord. And then they say the third one is the spirit Christ-directed life, or a Christian. And you see where the cross is. The cross is on the throne, on the chair. S is subservient to the, the chair. And all the little dots are in perfect arrangement. I mean, I remember looking at this as a young believer going, man, this makes perfect sense to me. The only problem is, the second diagram is not biblical. See, in the Romans... In our study through Romans, it is usually said that the the man portrayed in in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, some people say, well, that's the carnal Christian. And we're going to be getting into this in the coming weeks. That he's saved, he trusted Christ as his Savior, but he's just not living for Jesus. He's defeated. He needs to live in the Spirit, but he's living in the flesh. That's the doctrine of this carnal Christian. It basically excuses the behaviors of those who profess Christ as being something unspiritual or carnal. I want to point out to you just quickly that it's important that you're never going to understand Romans 7 and 8 if you think that somehow Paul is describing a defeated Christian who somehow becomes a victorious Christian. That's not what he's saying. Paul's not talking about a carnal Christian versus a spiritual Christian. He's talking about unbelievers and he's talking about believers. He's talking about those who have put their faith and trust in Christ as Jesus and Lord and those who have not. And the contrast is between what we were before our conversion and what we are now. Remember, we, way back when, we, we looked at, you know what, what it meant to be an Adam. And now we're in Christ. There's a difference. What it meant to be a slave to the law. Now we're God's servants. There's a difference. And yet many will still ask, well, what about... Something like 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul's writing the Corinthians, he says, Brothers, I don't address you as spiritual, but as what? Fleshly, as worldly, mere infants in Christ. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? And see, they take those verses and they say, See, this is, this is describing the carnal Christian. No, it's not. It's just driving Paul's point home even more. What is he doing? See, they're mistakenly supposing that Paul is teaching that men and women can become Christians and yet continue to live a sinful, carnal life. Paul never says that. And yet, they believe that somehow if you do that, then eventually you'll kind of catch up and then you'll, then you'll make Jesus your Lord and then you'll fully be a spiritual being. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 3 says. 
As a matter of fact, that's exactly what it does not say. The Christians in Corinth were indeed acting badly. That's clear. I mean, just read the book. I mean, they had all sorts of sin going on in their church. As Christians often do. And in that way, their lives were classified by Paul as worldly or fleshly. They were acting as if they were not Christians. As, they were, as if they were mere men. That's why he uses that word. As if they were unregenerate. But because they were not unregenerate, but were actually Christians, Paul says, you need to stop this. This is not excusable. There's no reason why you should be having this bad behavior, this behavior that doesn't honor your Savior. Their sin was inconsistent with what they had become in Christ, and therefore Paul classified it as intolerable. He wasn't going to stand for it. And that's exactly, when we get back to Romans, that's exactly what Paul is saying through these chapters 7 and 8. He's been teaching that the Christian is not what he was before he became a Christian. That person is what? Dead. It's buried. It's gone. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And because of that, we must live, we must act, we must think, we must speak differently, like Christ. We have a new desire to serve Him. We have a a desire to put our needs aside. We have a desire to realize that other people need to hear this message of the gospel. So I'm going to sacrifice in order for that to happen. And we're called to serve our Savior. We're not called to sit. We're not called to be a spectator. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to serve. And we're called to serve, beloved, until it hurts. (laughs) Why? Because that's what Christ did. That's exactly what Christ did. And when we remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, this is why when we come around this table, we need to do some self-examination. We need to look at our own hearts. Am I holding on to some profession of faith that I made years ago and haven't seen or heard of Christ since then? But because I walked an aisle or I raised my hand, I guess I'm a Christian. They say I am. If Christ has not changed you, you are not changed. (laughs) It's that simple. Now, do we still struggle with sin? Sure, we all do. But we have to have the understanding that God has given us victory and a way out so that we can become victorious over sin and death. Positionally, we already are. We just have to live up to that expectation. And that's why he says here in in, uh, Romans that this, this whole idea of bringing forth fruit... This fruit should be not fruit for death. That's what we did before we were a Christian. We worked and we worked and we tried to please God. And, and, and Paul says, that's not, not, not worth it. It doesn't do anything for you. But now, the end of verse 6, it says that we serve in a new way, the way of the Spirit, not in an old way of the written code. He meant that we were unable to do good works 
There's no way we could please God. Absolutely no way. And when he talks here of being married to Christ and that we're freed from our marriage to this old law because we died, Paul's point is the same. We died to the law in order that we might be brought into a new and fruitful relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we need to remind ourselves that this is true. The law not only is not sin, the law not only provokes sinners to sin, but the law, through our failures to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to the end of ourselves. In other words, when we finally realize, you know what, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do to make myself saved. God, you need to help me. And you know, a lot of people have a problem with that. A lot of people say, you know, when you, when you talk to people and you say, you know, you need to yield your life to Christ. You need to give up control. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to give up control. No way, I can't do that. Think of someone who's drowning in a pool. They're drowning. They're drowning in the pool. They're screaming for help. And you're beside the pool, so you jump in to save this person. And you swim up next to them, and you grab them. And this happens a lot of times. Any lifeguard knows this. Is that person just go, okay, just take me away? No. What do they do? They fight you. They don't want to give up control, even though they're drowning in the pool. And someone's there to save him. They're kicking, and, and sometimes they've they got to get a, a good grip on him and literally restrain them and take them to the side of the pool so that they don't drown. That's how so many people are when it comes to yielding their life to Christ. They're saying, no, 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 I can't give up control. Well, you know what? You're either going to drown and go to hell or you're going to give up control to a God who loves you and cares for you and provided a way out of your sinful state. There's no other option. See, and that's what we need to understand. It's not like you're, you're giving up control to somebody who's not going to save you. It's not that you're giving up control to somebody who's going to cause you to drown. They, God has your best interest at heart. We need to be reminded of that. We need to come to the end of ourselves and say, you know what? God, I'm in faith, I'm just going to cry out to you. I'm going to trust you. That somehow, this is the real deal. And I look around and I see the changes that you have made in people's lives. And yeah, it's a little freaky to give up control. I don't like to give up control. That's why I drive everywhere usually. I don't like somebody else driving. Just kind of sets me, you know, I just can't relax. I've gotten better. But usually, me or my wife, it's my wife or I, it's, it's me driving. Not that she's a bad driver, by the way, but it's just, that's just the way it is. And she's grown to prefer that. But it's, it's a matter of control, see? And we need to come to the end of ourselves. And that's what he says there in the verses that we read. I was once alive apart from the law. 
But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. In other words, Paul's saying, before I knew about the law, I was fine. See, but once you find that God has a standard, then all of a sudden, wow, man, that just wipes you out. And you need to come in the prescribed manner that God has given us. So the law brings us to the end of ourselves. It really does. There's no way we can keep it. There's no other way out. And that's what he says. When he says, I died, he basically means the way I was living, I had to give it up. It was over. I couldn't continue in this fashion. It's like the the, the Pharisee in Jesus' story in Luke 18. He's talking to Jesus, and, and, or he's talking to God, and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like the swindlers and the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all that I get. And here's this, this poor broken soul over there. All he can do is beat his chest and cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, that's the kind of prayer that will save you. It doesn't involve raising your hand. It doesn't involve walking down an aisle. It involves making a decision based on the information you're given about the God who loves you and the way of salvation that he's given to you. And as we come to this table today, I just want to remind us that we, we need to be reminded that it's not all about us. That this law could never save anybody if it, if it, if it had to. It, it never would happen. It just, it just doesn't have the ability to save us. But that's why Christ had to send a Savior. But when we're also out there preaching the gospel, we need to make sure that we teach the law of God to waken the hearts of people, to show them their own sinfulness. You know, don't go out there giving them some happy, happy Jesus message. You know, Jesus wants you to be happy. God has a wonderful plan for your life. All this stuff, you know. I mean, tell them what the Word of God says, that they're lost in their sin. And take them through the commandments if they doubt. Have they ever lied? Have they ever told a, 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 a lie? Have they ever um, stolen anything that's not, not theirs? Have they ever thought a, a, a lustful thought? Whatever it might be. Take them through that. Not, not anybody can stand up against that. And what are you doing? You're pointing out that, you know what? You're at the end of yourselves too. You just don't know it. And God will show you your need of a Savior. And I think that we need to be definitely um, reminded of that. I want to close with an illustration that James Boyce used in his commentary. He tells of a time when John Gerstner, who was retired from teaching in church, he retired from uh, church history at, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was at a certain church and he was preaching from Romans and he was expounding on the law and used it to expose how, how God uses it to expose sin. And after the service, a woman came up to him and she held up her hand, and with her index finger and her thumb, she said, you know what, Dr. Gerstner? You made me feel about this big. 
And his reply was classic. He said, but madam, that's far too big. (laughs) That's much too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? See, that is so true. And we need to be reminded of that. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this message. Lord, we pray that we would understand that there's no uh, in-between stage of Christianity. Either you're all in or you're all out. And Lord, we know that at times that we do give in to sin. And Father, you, you have provided a way for that, of forgiveness. And we come to this table and we thank you for our communion time that we can look at our lives and look into our hearts. And if there's anything there that is hindering our relationship with you or with others, Father, now's the time to deal with it. That we can come to you in prayer and asking and acknowledging your forgiveness and turning from that. And so, Lord, we pray today that as we celebrate this time of communion, if there's any here who has yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that what a wonderful time to cry out to you, to to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. I know that there's no way out of my sin other than Christ. He's the only Savior. He's the only lifeguard that's helping me. Help me to understand that I need to cooperate. I need to yield my life to him. And he'll transform me. And he'll save me from my sin. And as believers, as we examine our own hearts, I pray that this time would be a time of seriousness. And this table is for those who acknowledge Christ as their Lord and Savior. They, they understand who Christ is. They've committed their lives to following him. If you're not one of those people here today, I just pray that you would pass the elements by. And parents, I know we have children here. We, we pray that you would do what's right concerning them. If they don't understand what the communion table is about, this isn't a snack. It's not a little cup of juice that they get before fellowship time. This is serious business. And I pray that we would help them to understand that. So Lord, I pray that as we uh, sing a song and then have our worship, have our communion together, that you would continue to bless our time together. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.